we're going to read uh, from the book of Acts where we left off. And uh, those of you that have been with us, it's been a long journey, and it's been a good journey as we've traveled with the Apostle Paul and his companions. Uh, before that, we saw what God did through Peter and John, through uh, Philip and Samaria. It's been a lot of fun to see. Uh, but we've kind of come upon this section of Scripture where there's a whole bunch of trials. And I don't mean trials in the uh, old country gospel way of saying trials, like tough times. I mean actual trials, like court appearances. And you might think that's the boring part of the book. You know, we got to the part of the book of Acts where it's, it's, he's, he's standing before the Jewish court, then he's standing before the Roman court, then he's back in front of a, a Judean king. And so you might think, well, this is kind of boring. It's just courtroom drama. But I'll tell you the truth is that the Holy Spirit was working in this time to do something in not only in Judea, but to do something in the Roman Empire. And uh, there were seeds sown in these little courtroom sessions that uh, echoed throughout the rest of the empire that echoed uh, through the rest of the church. And so, you know, even though it's only taken us like a year and some to get from the beginning of Acts to where we are now, you got to know it's uh, a lot of time has passed in, in the book of Acts from that day of Pentecost to where we are right now. Years have gone by, things have changed, and the gospel is still penetrating places it hasn't been yet. It's still going to new places. It's still causing riots. It's still uh, turning the world upside down. And so we find ourselves where Paul has been uh, arrested. And if you've been reading with us, you know that his plan all along was to be arrested. He knew he was going to be arrested. He wasn't surprised by that. In fact, it was part of the plan. Because the one nice thing about being arrested is they got to put you on trial. And the one nice thing about being put on trial is you get to preach to people who can't go anywhere. You know, they're just a captive audience. They think you're the captive, but they're the captive audience. They got to stick there and listen to you. So the Apostle Paul has been called. You've got to remember that when he was first knocked off his horse or if he was walking, he's knocked on the ground. Either way, when he's knocked on the ground, one of the things that Jesus says to him is that he is going to testify before kings and rulers for his name. So even though Paul went to the poorest of the poor, he went to the, anybody that would hear. He also knows part of his mission is to preach before kings. So he's convinced he's going to preach in front of the emperor himself. Old wacky Nero, as much of a nut bar as that guy is, he's going he's to stand up and preach the gospel to that man. He's going to stand up and preach the gospel to Agrippa. He's going to stand up and preach the gospel to the governors of the time because they need to hear it too. And so, as the scripture says, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but it was the Apostle Paul that wrote that uh, we are making known the wisdom of God to the rulers of this world, to the principalities. And while, in, to some degree, that has to do with spiritual rulers and forces, it also has to do with earthly rulers and forces. So, we're, we've left off, he got arrested. He almost got torn to bits in the, in the Jewish council. He escapes that. The soldier drags him away so that the crowd doesn't eat him alive. And then they take him uh, from, from Jerusalem to about halfway through between Jerusalem and Caesarea. He, he stays at, with the army at the barracks there. And then they take him the rest of the way all the way to Caesarea, which at the time was the capital of the province of Judea. So all of this is under the Roman Empire. 
but were in the Judean province. And the Romans, the reason they had a successful empire was not just because they had a good army, was not just because they had a good economy, but one of the reasons that they held their empire together without having too many rebellions is that they tried their best to let you keep some of your culture, to let you keep some of your religion while still becoming Romanized. So what they've allowed the Jews to do is to have some of their own traditions and sometimes take some of their own justice. Because really, they're afraid that these guys, these guys are so intensely religious, which is, you know, they're, they're intensely passionate about God, which is a good thing. Of course, it's a bad thing to have zeal without knowledge, isn't it? So when you're passionate about God, but you're wrong about him, that's a problem. You know what I mean? As we can see in the world today, there are people passionate about God, but the God they're passionate about is not the God that we're talking about right now. That God does not tell you to fly planes into buildings. That, that God does not tell you to kill men, women, and children just so that they, you know, so that you can set up your little earthly empire. That's not what our God says. So anyways, I'll tell you a little backstory. When the Romans were first coming through uh, some of these areas of Judea, they carried their banners and their banners had images of their, of their emperors, had images of their leaders. And the Jewish elders met them out on the road and said, you're going to have to take those down. And they said, well, we're in charge here. We don't have to take anything down. They said, yeah, you are. Because you, that's idolatry. Now, I'm, I'm on these guys' side. I'm like, amen, guys, this is good. You know, they, that's how much they were willing to stand up for what they believed. So the Romans say, no, I'm sorry, that's just, it's just going to, we're just going to go through anyways. Well, these guys come and they, they, they get a bunch of people together and they all lay their heads and their necks out on the road. And they say, if you're going to come through with your, idol, your idols and your images, you're going to have to kill us first. So the Romans backed off. And there were a bunch of those times where they backed off. You saw when Jesus was being crucified, Pilate tried to get out of it many times. He's like, this guy's not a criminal. But he was more afraid of the mob starting a riot, which would lead to a rebellion, than he was of putting one innocent man to death. So this is the tension they're living in. And, and uh, Paul has been accused of bringing a Gentile into the courts of the Jews. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's turn to Acts 24 and read. In Acts 24, 1, it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have through you attained much peace... And since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This guy, when, when Luke calls him an attorney, a lawyer, he's not kidding. This is, this is classic lawyer stuff. Can I tell you Felix, who is the procurator, sort of like a governor of that province at the time, he was one of the worst they'd ever had. They had rebellions springing up all over the province. The Jews didn't like this guy at all. But you want to get on his good side, right? So they say, most excellent Felix. 
I mean, you are the man. We love you. Can I tell you, we've seen your fairness. We have, you've attained much peace, much peace. They had more rebellions in that period than they had at any point up to the, between the Maccabees and the rebellion of AD 70. They had had more rebellions during his reign than, than previous governors. But they're saying, oh, much peace. You've done good work. Because to a Roman, the highest compliment you could pay is that you are achieving Pax Romana. You are keeping the peace, the Roman peace. Oh, thank God. Thank you for invading us. Thank you, oh, our Roman liberators. No, they don't believe this. He's going to go back to his buddies and he's going to say, yeah, that Felix guy, I hate that guy. But he's going to flatter him because he wants to get on his good side for this court. So he says, you know, you've attained much peace. No, he hadn't. Since by your providence reforms are being carried out, Felix did less in the area of reforms than anybody else did. He says, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. I can't think, I I mean, I'm just prone to think, based on his record and based on how many rebellions took place during his reign, I don't think there were a lot of Jews around there that were thankful for Felix. But make him feel good. We want him to rule in our favor. Lawyers will be lawyers will be lawyers, right? (laughs) I I know there's some good, righteous, godly lawyers, and thank God for them. But there's also quite a few silver-tongued ones that really know the right words to say. And it says this, but that I might not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest (laughs) and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. You see the key words he's using. He's he's stirring up dissension. Oh, that that would prick the Roman ear. Because above all, keep the peace and put down rebellion. Felix put down a bunch of rebellions and he was pretty cruel and decisive when he did it. He didn't, he wasn't merciful. He was like, and so what they're trying to paint Paul as, and they're trying to paint all the Christians as, is, is a rebel cult, is a, is a movement that's going to overthrow the Romans. It was the same line they used when they were putting Jesus to death. He claims to be a king, and we have only king, one king, and it's Caesar. Oh, Caesar, how we love you. Of course they didn't. But you say what you want to say when you're standing in front of the judge. So he says... He's a real pest. He stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. Then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. You remember why Lysias took him out of your hands. You guys were about to kill him on the spot. He says ordering his accusers to come before you. By examining examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. So their final thought is, you're a wise judge, Felix. You'll be able to see it our way. Which if any of you have had nice little arguments when you were kids with your parents, that's a great way to do it, is to say, you know, Dad, you're the smart one in the family. Mom doesn't see it my way, but, but you will because you're smart like that. You know, and this is the, this is the card they're playing. You didn't try that? No, it didn't ever work for me either. I'm not saying I didn't try. It just didn't work. When the governor... 
uh, sorry, the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. He said, knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So he's not going to flatter Felix. He's just going to say, you've been a judge for a lot of years, so I'm happy to make my defense. You should be able to judge this. He doesn't spend the whole time flattering him. He just says, you've been a judge for a lot of years. You'll be able to handle this. Then he says, I I gladly make my defense since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I love how he says this. You know, they, they use the term, the sect of the Nazarenes, trying to make it sound like some weird little cult. He says, he just calls it the way. It's not a new religion. This is not a new sect. This is not a new, this is the way. This is the way for all men. It's the, he, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. So he says, I'm a follower of the way. And then he says, I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia. These were, would have been uh, probably from, you know, Ephesus and, and, and some of those areas in Turkey. He says, there were some of those guys who ought to have been present before you and make an accusation, which kind of shows you they knew they had no leg to stand on because they don't show up for the trial. In fact... This trial is taking place without any witnesses, without any proof. He said, if these guys are going to accuse me, they should at least be before you. But they're not. He says, they, should, they ought to have at least been before you to make their accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Just a brief background. Remember, they had accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. That was his friend Trophimus. Trophimus was from Ephesus. And so those Jews from Asia were probably from Ephesus too. And they recognized Trophimus. They knew he wasn't a Jew. And they saw Paul in the city with Trophimus. Now, it's not a crime to be hanging out with a Gentile in the city. But they just assumed he took him into the temple as well. But he didn't. See, if you were to go back to the temple around the time when this happened, you had different courts in the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles where all of us could go. We could just hang out there. We were allowed in the court of the Gentile. Any, any ethnic Jews here? No, okay. So all of us would have had to stay on the outside. So there's a court of the Gentiles. Then there's this big stone barrier. And the stone barrier had several, along the barrier it had these, these, these stone carved warnings No Gentiles passed this point on pain of death. We've unearthed some of these today. I say we, I wasn't officially part of the archaeology team. I was more part of the uh, internet observing team, I think. that (laughs) Archaeologists have uncovered these today, and they would say in Greek and in Latin. 
No Gentiles beyond this point on pain of death. So you could come to the court of the Gentiles. Then if you were a, a Jew, you could go to the court of the women. If you were a Jewish man, you could keep going to the next court, which was the court of men. If you were a priest, you could go to, the, to this, this inner court here. And if you were the high priest, one day of the year on the Day of Atonement, you could go into the Holy of Holies. So there are different levels, and they accused Paul of bringing his Gentile buddy into at least the court of men, but it didn't happen. So he defends himself quite well, but I want you to see what's the key word. What, what do you think the key thing that he keeps bringing up is? What's, what's a word that stands out to you in his resurrection? Resurrection is the thing that's standing out. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about resurrection as in resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the cornerstone of our belief system, is that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. That's not a fantasy. That's not a fairy tale. That is reality. But today, let's focus on something else because he's not just talking about, he really doesn't talk much on, at this particular court date about Jesus and his resurrection, but he speaks of the resurrection of us all both the righteous and the wicked. And that's something even the church today doesn't talk a lot about. I'm not talking about everybody, but it's not talked a lot about. The fact that you, there is a resurrection to come. See, a lot of us, you know, if you were to picture what's going to happen when you die, you just picture, you know, your little, your, your windy soul just kind of going up there. And, and forever you're going to sit on a cloud and play harps and eat, you know, what cream cheese or whatever, and you're just going to hang out. But... The Bible talks very clearly about a day when we will, these bodies will be resurrected. I don't care if you're eaten by a shark, if you're dead for 3,000 years and all you are is dust. God will give you a body. We will be resurrected. He will give us a body that is, that is able to last, like, like when Adam was first created. We're not talking about a body that dies. We're talking about it that's eternal. Now, this may sound like science fiction to you, but come on. This is, is, this, is the, the, this is what Jesus preached. This is not some weird little thing that somebody made up later. This is our Lord and Savior, what he spoke of and what he promised us. Yes, yes. And we've got to know that this earth will be redeemed. Yes. And these bodies will be redeemed. That everything we messed up in the garden, Jesus Christ will rebuild. Everything will be bought. Everything has been bought. Everything will be redeemed again. Now he says this. He says, I cherish, like these guys do, the hope that there will certainly be a resurrection. See, right now, we live in the reality. Our spirits are alive with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were made new on the inside, weren't we? The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that, that word man there means person, so you're all included. If any person is in Christ, they're new. They're, the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So right now, you've been made new because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you've noticed, you, you still got the same body. You didn't come up to the front and say, I give my life to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you notice that, uh, you know, your body was shifting back to, a, you know, a nice 22 years old or whatever. You know, you, that's not what happened. We still have this body. It's still on its way. If Jesus doesn't come back before then, it's on its way to the ground. It's not built to last. Your organs aren't built to last. Your skin, we can tell, isn't built to last because you notice after a while, it doesn't do what it used to do. Your body doesn't do what it used to do. But there is an eternal body that God has prepared for you. 
And I believe that just as much as I believe anything else, I believe that. And this is the cornerstone of this belief is that there will be a resurrection. This is not a side issue of Christianity, guys. This is not a side issue. He's, he's painting this as one of the crux, as one of the main things of, of our belief is that there will be a resurrection. There's a life after this. And it affects how we live today. Watch what he says. He says, because of the resurrection, and remember in 15, he said, that there will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, because of that fact, I do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. Which tells me that the knowledge that this isn't all there is, that there will be a, a day where we are resurrected, there is more after this. He says, in view of that, it changes the way I live right now. And it changes the way I act in front of you. You say, well, what does it matter what people think of you? Because he cares about them too. And he realizes if I maintain this blameless conscience, if I live right before God and before men, that they'll see me and they'll see Jesus. And that what, the way I'm living right now will affect their eternal destiny. And that matters to me. See, I'm thankful that we are forgiven. I'm thankful that we're cleansed. I'm thankful that we're washed. I'm thankful that our good works could not get us to heaven, but his good works, Jesus' work, got us where we need to be. But because of that and in light of that, I am going to live a life that reflects that goodness in my life. And I'm not just going to sit back and go on cruise control and say, well, I just can't wait to get to heaven. There's a reason we're here. What we're doing right now, we're sowing seeds that we'll harvest in eternity. What we're doing right now is going to affect the rest of eternity. What we're doing right now matters. I want to read you something. We'll come back to this in a minute. But I want to read you something. Hold your place and go to 1 Corinthians 15. We read that a, a couple of weeks ago. We read 1 Corinthians 15, but I didn't go all the way to the end. So I'd like to read the second part. In fact, if we had time, I'd read the whole thing again. <laughs> I want to stay on point. He says this. Let's start with uh, 38. 1 Corinthians 15, 38. He said, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds and another flesh of fish. But there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. So you recognize that this body is perishable, right? If you live past 100, you will be one of the oldest people in town, won't you? If not the. These bodies aren't meant to last very long. 100 years in, in light of eternity is nothing. It's just a glimpse, just a flash. But the, this time we have right here breathing air, is so important, is so valuable. I remember the moment that this really clicked for me, this verse. 
I remember my dad was doing a funeral right out at the Lloydminster uh, Cemetery. It was a nice summer day, and it was outside. Grass was green. It was just a beautiful day. Of course, it was a sad occasion because we were putting one of our brothers in the ground. I remember my dad quoted this verse. He said, we sow a perishable body, but we will reap an imperishable body. And as I watched that coffin go in the ground, it clicked for the first time. That it must go into the ground, but that that's not the end of the story. And while we sow this perishable body, there will be an imperishable body that is not succumbing to disease, that is not prone to age, it's not going to die. Because there is a world that God is preparing. And the only way you'll survive it is if he prepares you for it. So he says, it's raised an imperishable body. In verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. I mean, when are you more weak than the moment they put you in the ground? I mean... That body's just a shell now. You're not even there. That weakness in those last moments before somebody breathes their last breath. Sometimes we forget that this is just, this might be their last breath with this thing. But there is something after this. And it's sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It says in verse 44, it's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, I want you to see those two terms together. Because right now, your spirit and your body are two different things. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Your spirit and your body are different. The Bible talks about your flesh and your spirit being at war. Yeah. But here, he talks, he says, because we have a natural body. But we will have a spiritual body. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting about that is if he just said we're going to be spirits, you know, that's just kind of like, you know, like vapors. There's nothing there. But he doesn't talk about that. We're not talking about ghosts walking around. He's talking about a resurrected body, but it's spiritual. There's something to it. That this battle between flesh and spirit that you face right now, where your one part wants to do this and your other part wants to do this, you won't experience that. You will finally be returned to the state that God first created us to be. And thank God it'll be wonderful. This is not science fiction. Now, if you're a new believer and this is weirding you out, good. Let it weird you out a little bit. But trust me, this is what Jesus talked about. It's what our Lord talked about. It's it's all throughout the Bible. And, And the Apostle Paul writes right before he says this. He says, if there's no resurrection, we of most people are to be most pitied. He said, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, we have no hope. Flip that around. If there is, we have hope. Verse 45. So also it is written, the first Adam became a living soul. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a.k.a. Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from heaven. er, Sorry, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is of the earth, so also those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, which means that God has prepared something for you that your body can't handle, that you can't handle in your present stage. Don't you, did you ever read some of these scriptures where, where guys like Paul said, I groan, I long for my new body. I long for this day when my body will be redeemed. I long for this day where I don't have these struggles and this pain and this sickness. I, I long for the day. When I get to turn this in for something imperishable. Yes. And I used to read that and I'd say, I don't get that. I, I, I mean, I remember saying to an older pastor, I said, I don't get it. I, he seems to be so anxious for this. And I don't feel anxious for a new body. He goes, he looks at me and he goes, that's because your body still works like it's supposed to. You could eat Tupperware and digest it. You're fine. He said, but you get to the point. He goes, you, you, get, to, he goes, you get to my age, you start realizing it's not working like it's supposed to work. You realize it's not built to last forever. But there will be a body that is. And you can't inherit what God has for you in your present state. So he has prepared something better for you. Thank God. Yeah, this is not the kind of stuff we talk about at Arby's. If you're prone to go to Arby's. When at Arby's, I like Arby's, but when at Arby's, you are keenly aware of the temporary nature of your body, aren't you? You're aware that it won't last forever. You might have trimmed a few years off of it right there by eating it, Arby's. <laughs> we don't talk about this enough, I don't think. Because I think to some Christians, this still is weird. But this is the foundation of our belief. Honestly, I'm not sitting up here talking my opinion. We're reading right directly from the Bible. And it's what Jesus talked about often. And here's what he says. He says... Behold, I tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep. In other words, we won't all die. There'll be some that are alive when Jesus returns. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality, then it will come about, about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear what he says next because he spent a whole chapter talking about resurrection. And in this verse, he says this. Therefore, when you see therefore, he's referring to what came right, right, what you just read. Because of what I've just told you. Mm -hmm. Therefore, my beloved brethren, brethren includes men and women alike, you say my family. Be steadfast, immovable, Mm -hmm. always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toil, your labor, your work is not in vain in the Lord. Do you see this? He says, by knowing about the resurrection, by knowing that there will be something after this, by knowing that you will be changed, by knowing that you, this isn't the end, he goes, your work's not in vain. You're not wasting your time. This is supposed, this knowledge is supposed to give, get us to a place where we're steadfast. We're not going to be so easily shaken because we realize that this life is brief. This life is a flash. This life is a vapor. But what we do in this life has so much meaning. And he says, guys, I want you to be encouraged. 
that though you might not seem to be making headway right now, though you might say, my friends are being put to death by the empire, I have, or, or, or I, for some reason, I, I've been rejected by my culture, I've been rejected by society. He says, your work is not in vain. It's not in vain in the Lord because we are investing in this life into the rest of eternity. Because this body that you're living in right now, it won't look like this, but it will be resurrected. This earth that we are toiling in right now won't look like this. It will be burned up, but it will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the Lord will redeem it all. And what we do in this life matters. It matters. And I want you to turn back to Acts 24 because we see it so clearly that he is pointing out the importance of this resurrection. Verse 21, other than this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. But it says, but Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. You hear that? The governor wants to hear more about this. And his wife seems like she's interested too. She has believed in the one true God and now she's interested in hearing about the Messiah. So he wants to hear more about it, and it says, but as Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Isn't that an interesting trio of things to be talking about with the governor? <laughs> righteousness, self-control, okay, and the judgment to come. And all these three things go together. You might not know, how did Felix marry this Drusilla? And Drusilla wasn't supposed to be his wife. Drusilla was promised to somebody else. She was 16 years old. Felix saw her and says, I want her. She's very pretty. And he had more power. He had some weight to throw around. So he made it so that she left her husband and came with him. In fact, this is what he said. He said, come with me and I'll make you happy, which Spiro might be the only one that knows. He was playing a little bit of play on words because Felix comes from the Greek word for happy. Come with me, I'll make you happy. I know how to make you happy. Well, she's not going to say no to the governor, so she comes, she marries him. He might need to hear a little bit about self-control. He is a super corrupt governor who, who, even when Paul's here, wants to take a bribe, took regular bribes. He might need to hear a little bit about righteousness. But ultimately, <laughs> the point that Paul is making is about the judgment to come. Now, I'll tell you, when we all hear the words judgment to come, most of us don't smile or get up and dance. But judgment day for those that have found their hope in Christ Jesus, who has become righteous for us, who has taken our sin and our shame, judgment day is not a bad thing. See, you hate the judge when you're on the wrong side of the law. When someone steals your car, and you want to get it back, the judge all of a sudden is a good guy, isn't he? You don't like the judge when you're on the wrong side of the law, but Jesus Christ took your lawlessness, it took your sin and your iniquity on his shoulders, and he died a painful criminal death so that you could be judged righteous. 
Do you know what? The Bible tells us that Jesus took the sin of every person that ever lived and ever would live. It says for all men, everybody. Unfortunately, not everybody will receive that. He will be rejected by many. And the Bible says very clearly in the book of Hebrews, it says if you reject this sacrifice, there's not another one. It says how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, Jesus died for every single person. I don't care who they are. I don't care how bad they seem. I don't care where they come from, what language they speak. Jesus loved them enough to die for them. Now, all we got to do is not reject them. All we got to do is receive a free gift and exchange our death for his life. But unfortunately, not everyone will do that. And you see that Felix is being drawn by the Holy Spirit. He's being moved by the Holy Spirit. What Paul is saying to him is actually bringing him to a point of repentance. And do you know that is a very uncomfortable point, isn't it? Because it's at that point you decide, am I going to repent or am I going to resist? And you guys know what it's like to resist. We've all done it at some point. You know when the Holy Spirit is working on you and he says, come on, come closer. You can, you know, I mean, you you have that moment where he is truly, truly piercing your heart. And you either say, yes, okay, I'm going to turn. I I turn to you or you harden your heart and you put up your walls. And here's what happens to Felix. He's interested. He's hearing these things. But as Paul is discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, judgment to come, guys, we're talking about resurrection. You see, the point is, he's saying, after this life, we must answer for this. Here's the good news. You can stand before the judge not guilty because of Jesus. But you will not escape the judgment. No one will. Do you want to stand guilty or not guilty? Because none of us lived a life that met the standard of perfection. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. We all stand equally condemned and yet equally welcomed. Will we respond to it? And I believe, I don't, I, I don't know absolutely everybody here, but I believe you all have made that decision. We shouldn't be afraid to talk about this. is one of the most important things we could talk about. Because on that day, do you really want someone to look you in the eye and say, thanks for not bugging me? Do you really want somebody to say, thank you for not having an awkward conversation? Thank you for being so polite. Because at the end of the day, when they stand before the king, there's only one question. Is your name written? in the Lamb's book of life. And if I care about that person, if I love them, I recognize, first of all, I'm no better than they are. We all are in the same boat. But we have a Savior who loves them enough to send me and to send you into their path. And Paul knows it's probably a bad idea to tell the governor you need, to have, you need to be righteous. You need to have some self-control. And you need to know there's a judgment to come. You're not the ultimate judge, Felix. There's a judge, and he'll judge you. You see, what Paul's doing is he's not just, he doesn't want Felix to be condemned. He wants Felix to turn and repent. That's his goal, right? Remember John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist finally gets invited to dinner at the king's house. Put on your best clothes, Johnny, and shut your mouth, shave your beard. Would you finally take a bath? Don't, don't have locusts in your pocket that you're going to snack on before the food comes out. You know, be on your best behavior, John. But John, John gets to the dinner table, and he knows that, sort of like Felix's situation here, that Herod has taken his brother's wife, and they're not married. She's still married to his brother, but they're now together, and they're sleeping together, and they're living together, and all that. And John just can't, can't keep his mouth shut, and he brings it up. And he gets arrested and thrown in a dungeon. And then one day, that woman, because she's so offended, has her husband, has her daughter convince her husband <coughs> to chop John's head off, put it on a platter. You know, sometimes being truthful and being loving is more important than being polite. Come on, Elsa, come on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I believe in being polite. I believe in... And uh, not being rude or not, not being a jerk. But I also believe that ultimately what does love look like? Yeah. If I were to see a bus that was driving off a cliff and I jump out in front of it and I wave my hands and I say, stop for a minute. And as soon as I step on the bus, the driver starts driving again. Hey, I go, hey, stop. You guys get off, get off this bus. You got to get off this bus. It's going to go off a cliff. Yeah. Am I really going to feel bad that somebody had to take their headphones off? Am I really going to feel bad that I, that I interrupted their little, their movie on their watch on their laptop? Do I really feel bad that I'm making them late for something? They're about to drive off a cliff. What does love do? Love says, get off the bus. You're heading off a cliff. I've been to the edge and I saw it. Do I love the people that God puts in my life enough not to be arrogant, not to be proud, but, but to be loving enough to say, guys, this isn't all there is. Can I tell you there's a resurrection? And it's not just of the, of the good people. It's a resurrection of the, the righteous and the wicked. We're all going to stand before the judge. There is a judgment to come. And there is an escape for ju- from judgment because God loved you enough that he didn't want you to be found guilty. But he is a just God. And because he is a just God, sin can't stand in his presence. So rather than making you pay the penalty, he, he sent himself. He paid it himself yeah. so that you could stand before him and receive his free gift. And yet people will still reject him. Yeah. And I don't want to be the reason they do. So Paul says this to Felix. And it says that Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. You know what's happening in Felix's heart. You know why he's so uncomfortable? Because this talk about resurrection has reminded him, and he is aware that he will stand before the king one day. He is aware of his own inadequacy, and that would have been the perfect point to repent. But do you know what he would have had to give up? He's taking kickbacks. He's got power, and he's got a pretty girl that shouldn't be his wife that he's having a good time with. And rather than give all those things up, he rejects the message. That's sad, isn't it? The rich young ruler was invited by Jesus to be part of his tribe, to, to, to participate in the kingdom, to participate in eternal life. But he couldn't give up, couldn't give up his possessions. He was too addicted to his power and his, what, all the money he had. He couldn't give it away. So he went away sad. 
That's not always money. It's something different for everybody. But I, I, I pray that God would open hearts of people all around you. And you wouldn't be intimidated or afraid, but you'd love them enough to tell them the truth. And when you tell them the truth, that the Holy Spirit would do what you can't do, which is open the hearts and open minds. Here's what he says. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him, just, just hoping that Paul at some point would give him a bribe. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to, wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul spent two years in prison waiting to have a proper trial, constantly summoned just so this guy can wait for a bribe. But to him, I, I, I don't see him complaining about it. You see his letters that he wrote after this? He doesn't complain about that time. He used that time for the kingdom of God. I would encourage you, my brothers and my sisters, my friends, I'd encourage you to find out what you believe and believe it enough, believe it enough to be willing to say something about it when God opens the door. How much do we talk about the reality of resurrection? How, what do you believe about it? And do you, I mean, you know what? We, we are a pendulum society. We go over so far to the extreme and then we freak out because we realize how far we've gone. So we freak out, we go this way, and then we end up on the extreme on the other side. You know, we had a whole period of time where the only way that some of these traveling ministers could get people to come down to the front was to convince them, you're all going to hell, and it would be brimstone, and it would be fiery. You know, and then that was the only way is that people would cry, oh my goodness, I don't want to do that. You know, and, and they only focused on that. People thought at any given moment I could sneeze wrong and I'll go to hell. They had no assurance of salvation. They're so freaked out, like if I don't hold my pinky up when I drink my tea, God will send me to hell. That's what they thought. Maybe not just that far, but you know, it was extreme. Nobody was secure. Nobody's hope was in Jesus. Their hope was in their own goodness. But we got so freaked out by that that we ran to the other side. But we don't even mention these words anymore, barely. Heaven and hell and judgment. Because it was so abused over there, and we don't want to be like that. So we go way over here, and we're afraid to mention it. But are you doing anybody any favors? Look how many times Jesus talked about it. Just do that. Just read through the Gospels and see how much Jesus. You know, I think Jesus, the Bible, the Bible talks about prophetically, talks about Jesus being the plumb line. If you guys have been in construction, old school construction, you know what a plumb, plumb line is. You know that that plumb line shows you what's level. It shows you what's straight. Jesus showed us the, the proper measure. And if we want to see how we should preach and how we should act and how we should talk and how we should live, look at Jesus. That's right. he, didn't, he didn't skip around the subject. No. He didn't dance around it. He talked about it because he loved you enough to tell you the truth. The and I believe in resurrection. But resurrection has implications. The first part of resurrection, after you get these new bodies, is standing in front of the judge. I'll tell you this. This is what I believe. I believe that there are different judgment seats. Scripture talks about the judgment of the righteous, the judgment of the wicked. 
Bible tells us that no longer will your sin be brought up against you because of Jesus, right? If you're, if you're a believer tonight, if you've received Jesus, he says your sins won't be brought up again. So what will be talked about on Judgment Day? Well, the Bible tells us, and he's talking to believers, that we must give an account for every word and idle word indeed. It says in 1 Corinthians 3 that there will be people like you and me that stand before the king and it says, some will stand before him and will have built something that lasted, and they'll have a reward. There are rewards in heaven. There's crowns, there's rewards. But he says, some, because they built not on the foundation of Christ, but on the foundation of their own thing, and they built with sloppy materials, and they, and they did it to build their own kingdom rather than his. He says, at the end of the day, all their work is burned up. And it says, they themselves will be saved as though through fire. So they're saved, thank God. Thank God. There's going to be some people that are in, that are, thank God, not going to hell, made it to heaven, but they've got nothing to show. And you know what? The upside is, thank God I'm saved. The downside is, you should have something to show for your life. It says, guys, I want you to know your, your labor is not in vain. There's a resurrection. We have to be sowing in this life for the next. The good news about that is what I sow in this life has harvest in this life as well. Jesus told his disciples, he said, whoever gives up houses and land and and for my sake, family, brothers and sisters, for my sake and follows me, will reap much more. We will reap even a hundred times more, both in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. So what he's telling you is that there, are, there, there is absolutely, there is, there is rewards for, for following Jesus in this life, but there's a far greater reward in the next. And know that your work isn't in vain. That's right. Hallelujah. Thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I also want you to know that knowing that this body has been bought and paid for, and it will be redeemed, and it will be changed into an imperishable spiritual body that will last, that will inherit the kingdom of God, that has an inheritance in Jesus Christ. I know that what I do in this life matters. I know that what I do in this life has an effect. I know that I'm not wasting my time. And it makes me want to tell people about it. Because it makes me want, just like Paul, I know this might hurt my chances to get released, but you have to know about the judgment to come. You gotta know because if if I don't tell you, your blood's on my hands. I don't want you to look at me someday and say, "Why didn't you tell me?" Mm-hmm. There's a very well-known atheist. Many of you would know him. Uh, would know his work, Pendulette. He's he's very staunchly atheist, but he said something that really surprised me at one point. He said, "He said somebody took the time." to tell him about Jesus. And he was kind of shocked by that, you know. And uh, he said, I was starting to believe, and, and I'm, I'm not quoting him exactly because I don't have it in front of me, but the gist of it was this. He said, I was starting to believe that Christians didn't love me. He said, because if I believed what you believed, and I love somebody, I'd tell them. He said, I started to believe that people didn't love me because they're not telling me this. Now, I don't believe it, he said. I, I believe my own thing. But at least this guy, he said, I admire this guy. At least he loved me enough to tell me. Because if I believe what you guys believe, I'd be telling people. Sometimes it's, we hear it coming from another direction. It hits a little harder, doesn't it? He's right. Mm -hmm. He's right. 
If we really believe what we say we believe, and I do, it'll affect it. It'll affect what we do right now. Praise God. Let's not be a Christian in belief and an atheist in action. If we believe what we believe, let's live it out. There is a life to come. There is resurrection. Thank God. That's why we say, just as the Apostle Paul said there, when someone dies and they're in Christ, we say they are asleep because this is temporary. We mourn their loss. We're sad they went, but we rejoice that we will see them again. And we rejoice in the fact that this is not the end and your labor's not in vain. Amen. Stand with me tonight.